Welcome to HFC. We're glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're excited to see your smiling face. Today is a very, very significant, special day. Do you know what today is? Today is the week before Mother's Day, but it is May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. Yes, if you're a Star Wars fan uh, in the house today, say hey. hey. There we go. It is a great day to be a Star Wars fan. I, we were kind of having this contest this morning of who could do the best Chewbacca impersonation. Because Chewbacca is the coolest character on Star Wars. Does anyone have a good impersonation? On the count of three. One, two, three. That was pretty good. I am terrible. But my friend uh, Ben, that was terrible, wasn't it? My Sean Connery is much better than my Chewbacca. But my friend Ben, uh, he actually has a pretty good one. Let's see. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's good. That was, <laughs> it's like Chewbacca going through puberty. Uh, I thought it was great. Much better than mine. But if you get bored today, maybe you want to look on stage and, and, and visualize which character, Star Wars character, is represented on stage. I don't know. Who are, who are you, Garen? You're, are you Han Solo? Jabba the Hutt. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. We're glad you're here. There's a lot of great things happening here, and we want to tell you about a couple of those things coming up. Uh, Carrie Hayes is uh, our retreat director, and uh, she's going to tell you about something happening. All right. We are having our last retreat of the year, and this is a thing that we do for the women of the church here at HFC, and we are going to have a special ladies' tea, and it's next Saturday from 10 to 12. It's open to all ages, so you can bring your younger daughters and teenage daughters. We'd love to have you all there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we are going to have contests for the funkiest, wackiest, fanciest, and some other kind of hat. So um, wear your tea party hats. It can be any hat. It can be a baseball cap. It can be a fascinator hat. It could be a derby hat, whatever you want to wear. Um, dress however you feel comfortable. There are sign-ups in the back. We do need to know by Wednesday who's coming so we can make sure we have enough food and seating. There's also sign-ups in the back if you would like to bring food. We'll have a brunch and it's going to be a really, really fun time. There will be childcare available, but we also do need to know that so that we can make sure we have the appropriate people. If you have questions, Lena and I will be in the back um, after church, but we would love to have you all there. Cool. Thank you, Carrie. Kurt Vandervoort is our RTA director. He is, uh, RTA stands for uh, Rough Terrain Ahead, and uh, he's going to tell you a little bit about uh, that right now. Our kids will be going, um, we have a group of six kids going this year, uh, third week of June, and I've had the privilege of going on Rough Terrain as a youth leader for the church and as an outfitter guide for Voice of Wilderness, I don't know, I think seven or eight times. It has truly been a privilege. And you know, the purpose of Rough Terrain is to touch kids' lives. And we've had, as a church, we've had the opportunity to touch kids' lives. And we have kids here today who have been down that road, they've been through that path, 
they've carried that backpack. Huh. Rough terrain this year, um, to send these six kids, uh, a couple of adult sponsors, and then Lonnie and Sue Cox are going as Voice of Wilderness guides. So, so as a church, we have the privilege of having not just our youth sponsors going as guides, but we have, you know, guides from our church that know our kids, and that's a real blessing. But we also have to pay for this. Uh, we don't have a line item in the budget. So, folks, if your kids have gone, if if you've been impacted by rough terrain, please help us out this year. We need to raise ninety-two hundred dollars. The reason we care about that is not to raise the $9,200, but it is because we have this great opportunity to touch lives, hopefully in ways that just these kids can never forget. That's what we care about for Rough Terrain, is the event that touches a kid's life in a way that God can always tap their shoulder and the kids can never forget it. So help us do that this year with this group of six kids, if you would. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt. And if you're new uh, with us today, I'll tell you one thing. This is a church that believes in kids and students. And uh, that was overwhelmingly seen last week at the pie auction. Uh, you guys gave in, in huge ways, tasty pies and great donations. And a, just amazing place. It's a place for families. And we hope that you feel that love today. If you would stand to your feet. And uh, if you will, take a second to shake hands with someone and do your best Chewbacca impersonation. Last Sunday was an historic day in the history of this great church. It is only the third time in 26 years that we as a congregation have elected a senior pastor, and we did that last Sunday. The other unusual part of that is uh, we have a pastor who does not have to take his children out of school and put them in a new one and uh, break them in to a new school. We have a pastor who does not have, he and his wife have to pack up all of their earthly belongings and go across the country, sell a house there, buy a house here, and uh, unload that uh, great big old van. And then the third thing is we've elected a pastor that doesn't have to spend the next 30 days of his ministry going about this great big 30,000 square foot facility saying, now where are the light switches in this room and where's the air conditioner? But we have in fact elected and uh, he has accepted our call as senior pastor. Dr. Johnson will be here on June the 1st for the installation service, a great day of celebration but we want to give a Houston First Church welcome to our new senior pastor, Reverend Matthew Hawkins. And that's what I'm going to be going by as well, Reverend Matthew. <laughs> so from now on, the right reverend actually is better if you would prefer that. Guys, thank you so much uh, for, thank you for believing in me, for praying for me, 
Uh, it's been a, an interesting last few weeks and months, and I have to tell you, we have felt your prayers. We have felt uh, just uh, being lifted up by so many of you in the last few weeks. And uh, the words that have come to mind as I was thinking this whole week is humbled and excited. I am so humbled and honored to get the chance to be your pastor. It's such a privilege for me to get to live with you guys, to rejoice with you, to worship beside you, to sometimes mourn with you, to live life with you, and that is such a joy and honor uh, for me. I am overexcited. I am ecstatic. I am overjoyed. I am pumped. I am thankful about what God is going to do in and through this house, this church. And those things have been bubbling inside of me for a, a few months now. I've just have felt God moving and working inside of us and inside of me. And uh, I am thankful that I get to be a part of it, that I get to see God work and move. And let me tell you something I am really excited about as well. All of this Matt talk can end. And uh, I tell you one thing, I'll make you a promise. I will never, you'll never see this face on a billboard at any point in, in this town, all right? Now, no offense to anyone or person that goes to, these are great churches and very handsome men and women that are on these, these signs around town. A couple reasons I've got this thing on my nose that's just really, if you blew that up, it's not going to be pretty, but the other thing when I, I think about uh, just who we are. It's, it's not about me. It's not a me thing. It's not a Garen thing. It's not a Michelle thing. It is a Jesus thing. It's a Christ thing. And as I've been praying and I've been seeking God this week, uh, Ephesians is a great book of the Bible. It is amazing, uh, the story told here by Paul. And uh, if you're not reading anything right now in your, your, your walk, it's a great place to start. But in, in chapter 2, it's talking about who we were. We were, we were lost. We were outsiders. We were without hope. We were, we were empty, and we were struggling. But God, because of his great love for us, he gave us hope. He gave us purpose and a mission and just overwhelmed us with his love. And this is what it says at the, the, the end of that chapter. It says this, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, his word, God's word. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And that is who we are. We are God's house. And we are built on a cornerstone. And that's Jesus Christ. And a cornerstone, what is that? It's a foundation. It's the first brick that all the other bricks are determined by that one. And that's who Jesus is for this house, this place. And we together as a body, oh, we get the chance to, to be a part of that house. And I'm excited about what he's going to do through that. My prayer for you this week, my prayer for us, is found in that first chapter. And, and I don't know if it's on the screen. I hope it is. But this is what I've been praying for us as, as a community. I haven't stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might grow in knowledge of God. I pray that our hearts will be flooded, I love that image, flooded with his light 
so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to us that are called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. It's the same power, the mighty power, that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler, any authority, any leader, any power, not only in this world, but the world to come. God has put all things under his authority, Christ. He is the foundation of HFC. He is the center. He is who we are. And that is making me excited for what he's going to do. Now, we're going to take some time here. It's going to be a little bit of transition. I don't have to move. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, I don't have to switch schools for my kids. But there's a kind of a transition time, and we want to take that in the next few weeks. The, the DS has encouraged uh, me to take just a few weeks off and to begin to pray and to think about where things are going and, and what we're going to want to do as a, as a church. And so I'm going to take advantage of that. And uh, my prayer for us as a community is that, that we'll join together, that we will be praying together. And as God is bubbling these things inside of us, as he's growing something inside of us and coming, bringing us together as a community, that, uh, that he will give us a unified vision for what he would have for us. So would you join me for the next four weeks? It's about 28 days. The installation service is on June the 1st, but let's be praying and seeking God in, in whatever way. Take a time during the day, five minutes, 10 minutes, just praying for what God is gonna do in us. And let's start right now. Let's take some, some time here in service and let's, let's pray that God would be with us in this journey. Lord, I, I thank you so much. Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us, Lord. As we've read in Ephesians this morning, you are a God that, that, that didn't just create us and, and let us go, but you are a God that loved us so much that while we were even lost, we were sinners, we were apart from you, God, you loved us so much that you would die for us. And God, we celebrated that two weeks ago, but we haven't stopped celebrating. We celebrate every day that we have been set free in our hearts. Lord, that is our prayer, that we would be flooded with your light, that this place, that this house, your people would be flooded with light wherever we go, that, Lord, that you would make a huge impact in our world through us, God. That's our prayer. That's our hope. That's what we want more than anything, God, to be a part of what you're doing. I am humbled to get that chance to, to be a part of that here, God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for using someone that's not perfect. Thank you for using a people that are not perfect, a people that are broken, a people that are in need of you, God, and thank you that we have a Savior that comes through, a Savior that is the cornerstone, a Savior that provides, a Savior that restores, a Savior that redeems, God, we want to see great things. Lord, we want to see amazing things. We want to see things that we tell our kids about. We want to see stories. We want to hear of lives changed. God, we want to be more like you. We want to worship you with joy. Lord, we want to just, when we gather in this place on Sunday, God, we want to see the unexpected. We want to see lives changed and hearts cleaned. 
God, that's our prayer. That's our desire. Lord, I pray that it would begin to stir amongst us, Lord. God, I pray that as we seek you in the next four weeks, God, Lord, that you would bubble inside of us your vision, your hope, your dreams through us, Lord. God, I lift up the community this morning as we gather for prayer. Lord, there's those that come in this house this morning. And, Lord, they're overjoyed. There's been a great week that's taken place. Good things have happened. Good reports from doctors. Good things happening at school and at work, Lord. And and we want to praise you for those good things because we know those things come from you, God. And we don't take credit for them. And, God, Lord, we pray for those that are hurting this week. I pray for that, the Sweet Wagner family, Lord, that is dealing with loss this morning and is mourning. God, we lift them up to you, God. Lord, we pray that you would be a God of peace and you would wrap arms around those loved ones, God. Lord, we pray for those who are depressed this morning. They come into your house and there's just a burden, a darkness in their life, God. And, Lord, we pray that the light would just flood their hearts this morning, God. Lord, God, we pray for those who are lonely, that are lost, that are in need this morning. And you know about the different needs in our families, in our lives, God, and we hold those up to you, Jesus. Oh, God, meet with us in this place as we worship you, God, as we point to you, as we look at your love and your grace, and we look at your face this morning, God, I pray that through your word, through your words, God, that we would be shaped and molded by you, your people, God, called by you, Lord. God, you're so good to us. Thank you for doing what you do, only what you can do. And we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand and worship our God. Good morning. Well, I don't know about what character you guys think you are off Star Wars, but I thought to myself that I was probably Jabba the Hutt. Um, And then George um, told me that I was really Darth Vader. I'm not quite sure what that means. I don't know if he got the fact that I'm actually a new creation or what, but uh, so there you go. Last week, Pastor Garen talked to us about um, the need for a new normal in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He talked to us about the fact that our old faith would no longer be sufficient, that we need a new faith. And today I'm going to talk to us about love, about a new love. But before I do, I want to talk to you about what, what God thinks about you when God thinks about you. What God thinks about you when God thinks about you. When you think about what God thinks about you, what do you think God thinks about you? It's, it's a really big idea, and it's a tongue twister, but it really is important because it has a huge impact on what you think about when you think about what God thinks about you and what you think about when you think about God. You with me? Now, it really shouldn't be that way, but it is. We should know what God thinks about us without our opinions weighing in on it, but we don't. For most of us, when we think about what God does think about when he thinks about us or me, we sort of bounce it off um, some things that we really shouldn't bounce those thoughts off of, and it impacts the way we view God. So as we start, what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Let me tell you some things that influence the way we think God thinks when we think God thinks about us. Generally, the biggest influence, the biggest thing that influences, I think, what we think God thinks about us when God thinks about us 
is what we think about us. This is so strange. And as I explain it, you're going to instinctively know that it's not the right way to think. But, but we generally think that God thinks about us, basically, what we think about ourselves. Right? So if I'm having a really great day, if I got up early and I read my Bible and I did my devotions and I was nice to my husband or I was, didn't yell at my kids or I let somebody um, cut in front of me in line somewhere at the grocery store, which rarely happens. But I generally think that God is happy. Happy. What is the word I'm looking for? He's happy for me. He's happy because I was good. That's what I'm looking for. He's happy because I was good. Now, when you've had a bad day, we're convinced that God's not happy with us, right? Maybe that habit has sort of crept back into our lifestyle, and you feel some shame, and maybe you feel some guilt, or you were harsh with your husband or your wife. Or maybe you were harsh with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Or maybe you were harsh with your boyfriend and your husband. Okay, just seeing if y'all are listening. That's bad. I'm just kidding. But what, what about at work? What if you were dishonest at work? Or what if you didn't disclose everything that you were supposed to disclose on that deal? And there's a little bit of a cloud of guilt over you. Then we assume that God is not happy with us, right? kind of a really strange phenomenon. We, we live and think as if God takes his cues from us. Now, we don't really believe that, I don't think, but it's kind of how we operate. We think that God is thinking about us. We, we think that God's thinking about us is a mirror of our thinking about us. But here's a big idea. What if God does not take his cues from you or from me? The other thing that influences what we think God thinks about us when we think about what God thinks about us is what other people think about us. Because we learned a long time ago as children, our behavior matters, doesn't it? Our behavior influences the way people think about us. Our behavior sets us up to make and keep great friends. Our behavior sets us up to be successful relationally whether romantically or just relationships in general. So it's natural for us to think, well, if my behavior matters to others, certainly my behavior must matter to God. And I bet when God thinks about me, it must matter to him. And I bet when God thinks about me, he picks up the filter of my behavior and he looks at me through the filter of how good I've been or how bad I've been. And then the other thing that's similar that I think influences the way we think God thinks about us when God thinks about us is just culture in general. Because I learned a long time ago, as you did, if we don't perform well, things don't go so well, do they? You gotta perform. You gotta perform at school. You gotta perform at work. Some of you even feel like you have to perform in your marriages. Some of you feel like you have to perform for your parents. Maybe your little sister gets all the attention. Maybe you were compared to your older, smarter brother. So you feel like you have to perform in order to get the love that you want 
or need. For some of you, the way you were raised, you didn't experience love unless it was performance-based. And that wasn't your fault. It was just the way it is. It was your lot in life. And so it's natural for us to think when we think, I wonder what God thinks about me, to think that he must measure what he thinks about me with my performance. And again, when you think about it, you think, well, maybe God doesn't do that. But in terms of our reaction and response to God, oftentimes those things do come into play. Well, let's look at what the Bible says God thinks about us when God thinks about us. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whose love does God demonstrate for us? His. Not yours, not your friends, not the culture's. His love for us. God's love doesn't take his cue from you, from me, from our friends, from the culture. That means before you were even born to sin, before you even had an opportunity to do good or to do bad, before you even had an opportunity to say yes to God or to say no to God, before you were even a thought in anyone's mind, God, because of his love for you and for me, decided he was going to go ahead and take care of the sin issue. That's why John said, for God so loved the world. What? For God so loved the world, what? He gave. He didn't require anything. He gave his son that whosoever, the sinner, the Pharisee, the tax collector, you, me, that whoever believes shall have. It's a gift. Boom. It's a gift eternal life. But did you know that before you made that decision or after you made that decision that God has removed sin from impeding with his love for you? Because God, while you were still a sinner, sent Christ to die for you. See, that's a love completely different than what we think about God's love for us when we think about God's love for us, isn't it? This type of love necessitates a new kind of response to God. We can no longer go on living the way we were. Not because God requires us uh, to, to follow the law or God um, is going to smite us if we don't. But it, is, it should be out of a response to the love he has for us. We should want to love him more. We should want to obey him. We should want to become more like him. We should want to become holy. Now, when we think about holy, we get different visions in our head. Sometimes we think about girls with long skirts and long hair and no makeup, or we think about people living way out without electricity and doing all their farm farming themselves, and uh, we think that's old and antiquated. Um, maybe we think about uh, holier than now. She thinks she's better than me, or he thinks that she's better than me. But let's listen to what Paul says holiness is in Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into one death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Catch that new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died to Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Likewise, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 23 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, 
live your time as foreigners, foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God has called every Christian to a holy life. Not just me, not just Pastor Matt, not just Pastor Garen, not to the people who teach a life group or lay leaders in the church, not just to missionaries. It is for every single Christian in this room. He has called us to live a life of holiness. This call to live a life of holiness is based on the fact that God is holy. Um, Jerry Bridges, uh, the author of The Pursuit of Holiness, says that some Christians live um, in what we might call, a, have what we might call a culture holiness. They adapt to the character and the behavior pattern of the Christians around them. So as the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so these Christians are more or less holy. Does that ring true to anyone? I've been on both ends of that. Um, I've been the one dragging someone, another Christian down um, because I wasn't where I should be with my walk in Christ. And I've been, I've had somebody drag me down because they weren't walking with Christ the way they should have been. But friends, think about your conversations with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family, even your conversations that you have in your life groups. Are you adapting to the behavior of those around you? Or are you imitating God? Because God has, called us to not, has not called us to be like those around us. He's called us to be like him. And he is holy. You might be thinking right now that you want to live a holy life, but you don't know how to live a holy life. You've tried and you've failed. I'm with you. I know that feeling all too well, unfortunately. But I think one of the reasons we don't experience holiness more in our daily walk with Christ is because our focus is all wrong. Our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. And it took me a long time to figure this out. Sometimes when we sin, we're like, oh, I did it again. I did this again. I did that again. I, I want victory over that sin but we don't think about it as the fact that we are grieving the heart of God when we sin. We're grieving him because he wants what's best for us, and if we're sinning, we're harming ourselves, which is harming God. And so I think if we could just shift our focus away from, from the sin being centered on us, I messed up again, and we could see it as we really grieved God when we sinned. I think that would change the way we live. I really do. 
we, we, we tend to think that God's mad. Oh, God's mad at me again. But friends, God is not a God of condemnation. He is a God of grace and of hope and of mercy, and he wants the best for you, and he wants the best for me, and he wants us to live a holy life because that's what's best for us. W.S. Plumer said, We never see sin aright until we see it as against God. All sin is against God in this sense, that it is his law that is broken, his authority that is despised, his government that is set at naught. Pharaoh, Saul, and Judas each have said, I have sinned. But the returning prodigal said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Do you see the difference? The first is based on their selves. The second are based on what they did to God. We also struggle with defeat when we get confused about our part and God's part in the pursuit of holiness. You see, God made it to where we could be free from sin, but the choice is ours, and we cannot do it alone. That is why he gave us the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit enables us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But we have a part in this. He's not going to do it all for us. Notice the words, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. It is clear by those words that we are the ones to assume responsibility for a holy work. Now, the Holy Spirit will help us all day long if we let him, but we have a responsibility in it. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice the words, let us. Clearly, he expects us to assume responsibility for the running of the race, with the Holy Spirit's help, of course. But we have to have a part. Sometimes we misconstrue dependence on the Holy Spirit to mean we don't need to make any effort and have no responsibility. But nothing could be further from the truth. God makes provision for our holiness, but he gives us the responsibility of using those provisions. Friends, if we're watching things that we shouldn't be watching on TV, if we're going to places that we shouldn't be going, if we're reading things that we shouldn't be reading, if we're listening to music, teenagers, that we shouldn't be listening to, then we're setting ourselves up for defeat. We must strive for holiness by throwing off everything that hinders us. Not only does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ call for a new normal, it also calls us to love others differently. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, what the greatest commandment was, he replied, Love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Likewise, 1 John 4, 19 through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. 
if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Not my words. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This love stuff is hard, huh? Especially for people that you don't know and, you, and people that you don't really like, right? Surely we don't have to love the person that, that almost ran you off the road and almost killed you, right? What about the waitress that cannot, for the life of her, get your order right, despite how many times you have told her? Do we still have to love her? What about the checkout person at the grocery store who has to read all of the labels on the groceries that are you buying? This happened to me the other day. Every label, she's reading it, and I'm like, lady, just check out my groceries. She was like, oh, what is this? And I said, contact solution. She goes, oh, that's probably why it says OptiFree. And she prob we probably had a five-minute conversation about my contact solution. I kid you not. But yes, God has called me to love her too. What about the neighbor that cuts his yard and then blows all of his grass over to your yard and your lawn people have already come? And so you pay somebody $25 a week to come out there and do your yard, but you have to go back out and sweep it because he's put it all over there. Or we have two new neighbors that um, moved in, and I hope, gosh, I hope they're not here today. Um, <laughs> I really do love working on it. I didn't say I was perfect. I'm working on it. But we have two new neighbors. Um, some, one has been there for the longest time. Uh, Mike has had the, the, Mike Carr has had the joy to meet him. He doesn't say hello to anyone. He, you wave to him and he scowls. And you wave to him even more just to irritate him and he still scowls. He never says a word. He doesn't respond to you. Um, but then we have, he's been there a couple months. Then we have brand new neighbors that moved across the street. They're so nice. They've introduced themselves to us already. And they said, hey, have you met the grumpy guy next door to us? They said, my kids were outside swimming in their own swimming pool, mind you, at 7 o'clock at night. And the guy came over, banged on the door, and said, you got to keep your kids quiet. Yes, he did. And we are to love him as well. Um, in all seriousness, how dare we, how dare we not love someone that God has sent his son to die for, that God loves just as much as he loves you and as he loves me? How dare we stand across from somebody and judge them because God loves them as much as he loves us, and he calls us to love them back. We don't have to like them. We don't have to like their behavior, but we do have to love them. Friends, the Bible says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
the death and resurrection of Christ requires a new love. A new love for God and a new love for others. But all of that hinges on how we see God's love for us. If we don't have the right perspective of God's love for us, no matter how hard we try, we will be unable to live a new life in Christ and to love others. In closing, let me tell you about a parable that Max Lucado uses in his book, In the Grip of Grace. Once there were five sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest was an obedient son, but his four younger brothers were rebellious. Their father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. He had begged them to stay clear of the bank, lest they be swept downstream. But the river's lure was too strong. Each day, the four rebellious brothers ventured closer and closer until one son dared to reach in and fill the waters. Hold my hand so I won't fall in, he said, and his brothers did. But when he touched the water, the current yanked him and the other three into the rapids, and they rolled down the river. Over rocks they bounced, through the channels they roared, on the swells they rode. Their cries for help were lost in the rage of the river. Though they fought to gain their balance, they were powerless against the strength of the currents. After hours of struggle, they surrendered to the pool of the river. The waters finally dumped them on a bank in a strange land, in a distant country, in a barren place. Savage people dwelt in the land. It was not a safe place like their home. Cold winds chilled the land. It was not warm like their home. Rugged mountains marked the land. It was not inviting like their home. Though they did not know where they were, of one fact, they were 100% sure. They were not intended for this place. For a long time, the four young sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall and not knowing where to turn. After some time, they gathered their courage and re-entered the waters, hoping to walk upstream. But the terrain was too, ste too steep. They considered climbing the mountains, but the peaks were too high. Besides, they didn't know the way. Finally, they built a fire and sat down. We shouldn't have disobeyed our father, they admitted. We are a long way from home. With the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in the strange land. They found nuts for food and killed animals for skins. They determined not to forget their homeland or abandoned hopes of returning. Each day they set about the task of finding food and building shelter. Each evening they built a fire and told stories of their father and their older brother. All four sons longed to see them again. Then one night, one brother fell to come to the fire. The others found him the next morning in the valley with savages. He was building a hut of grass and mud. I've grown tired of our talks, he said. What good does it do to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I will build a house, and I will settle here. But it isn't home, they objected. No, but it is if you don't think of the real one. But what of the father? They asked. What of him? He isn't here. He isn't near. Am I to spend forever awaiting his arrival? I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes. But I'm not holding my breath. And 
so the other three left their hut-building brother and walked away. They continued to meet around the fire, speaking of home and dreaming of their return. Some days later, a second brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his siblings found him on a hillside, staring at the hut of his brother. How disgusting, he told them as they approached. Our brother is an utter failure, an insult to our family name. Can you imagine a more despicable deed, building a hut and forgetting our father? What he is doing, what he is, doing is wrong, agreed the youngest, but what we did was wrong as well. We disobeyed. We touched the river. We ignored our father's warnings. Well, we may have made a mistake or two, but compared to the sleaze in that hut, we are saints. Father will dismiss our sin and punish him. Come, urged his two brothers, return to the fire with us. No, I think I'll just sit here and keep an eye on our brother. Someone needs to keep a record of his wrongs to show the father. And so the two returned, leaving one brother building and the other brother judging. The remaining two sons stayed near the fire, encouraging each other and speaking of home. Then one morning, the youngest son awoke to find he was alone. He searched for his brother and found him near the river, stacking rocks. It's no use, the rock-stacking brother explained as he worked. Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I offended him. I insulted him. I failed him. There is only one option. I will build a path back up to the river and walk into our father's presence. Rock upon rock I will stack until I have enough rocks to travel upstream to the castle. When he sees how hard I've worked and how diligent I have been, he will have no choice but to open the door and let me into his house. The youngest lifted his eyes up to the face of his older brother. And he sat down by the fire alone. One morning he heard a familiar voice behind him. Father has sent me to bring you home. The youngest lifted his eyes to see the face of his older brother. You have come for us, he shouted. For a long time the two embraced. And your brothers, the eldest finally asked, one has made a home here. Another is watching him. The third is building a path up the river. And so firstborn set out to find his siblings. He went first to the thatched hut in the valley. Go away, stranger, screamed the brother through the window. You are not welcome here. I have come to take you home. You have not. You have come to take my mansion. This is no mansion, firstborn countered. This is a hut. It's a mansion, the finest in the lowlands. I built it with my own hands. Now go away. You cannot have my mansion. Don't you remember the house of your father? I have no father. You were born in a castle, in a distant land where the air is warm and the fruit is plentiful. You disobeyed your father and ended up in this strange land. I have come to take you home. The brother peered through the window at firstborn as if recognizing a face he'd remembered from a dream. But the pause was brief, for suddenly the savages in the house filled the window as well. Go away, intruder, they demanded. This is not your home. You are right, responded the firstborn son, but neither is it his. The eyes of the two brothers met again. 
Once more, the hut building brother felt a tug at his heart, but the savages had won his trust. He just wants your mansion, they cried. Send him away. And so he did. Firstborn sought the next brother. He didn't have to walk far. On the hillside near the hut, within eyesight of the savages, sat the fault-finding son. When he saw firstborn approaching, he shouted, How good that you are here to behold the sin of our brother. Are you aware that he turned his back on the castle? Are you aware that he never speaks of home? I knew you would come. I have kept careful account of his deeds. Punish him. I will applaud your anger. He deserves it. Deal with the sins of our brother. Firstborn spoke softly. We need to deal with your sins first. My sins? Yes, you disobeyed the father. The son smirked and slapped at the air. My sins are nothing. There is the sinner, he claimed, pointing to the hut. Let me tell you of the savages who stay there. I'd rather you tell me about yourself. Don't worry about me. Let me show you who needs help, he said, running toward the hut. Come, we'll peek in the windows. He never sees me. Let's go together. The son was at the hut before he noticed that the firstborn had not followed him. Next, the eldest son walked back to the river. There he found the last brother, knee-deep in the water, stacking rocks. Father has sent me to take you home. The brother never looked up. I can't talk to you now. I must work. Father knows you have fallen, but he will forgive you. He may, the brother interrupted, struggling to keep his balance against the current. But I have to get to the castle first. I must build a pathway up the river. First, I will show him that I am worthy. Then I will ask for his mercy. He has already given his mercy. I will carry you up the river. You will never be able to build a pathway. The river is too long. The task is too great for you, for your hands. Father sent you to carry me home. Father sent me to carry you home. I am stronger. For the first time, the rock-stacking brother looked up. How dare you speak with such irreverence? My father will not simply forgive. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. He told us to avoid the river, and we disobeyed. I am a great sinner. I need much work. No, my brother, you don't need much work. You need much grace. The distance between you and our father's house is too great. You haven't enough strength nor the stones to build the road. That is why our father sent me. He wants me to carry you home. Are you saying I can't do it? Are you saying I'm not strong enough? Look at my work. Look at my rocks. Already I can walk five steps. But you have five million to go. The younger brother looked at the firstborn with anger. I know who you are. You are the voice of evil. You are trying to seduce me from my holy work. Get behind me, you serpent. He hurled at firstborn the rock he was about to place in the river. Heretic, screamed the path builder. Leave this land. You can't stop me. I will build this walkway and stand before my father, and he will have to forgive me. I will win his favor. I will earn his mercy. Firstborn shook his head. Favor one is no favor. Mercy earned is no mercy. I implore you, let me carry you up the river. The response was another rock. So firstborn turned and left. The youngest brother was waiting near the fire when firstborn returned. The others didn't come? No. One chose to indulge, the other to judge, and the third to work. None of them chose our father. So will they remain here? The eldest brother nodded slowly. For now. And we will return to the father? Asked the brother. Yes. Will he forgive me? Would he have sent me if he wouldn't? 
And so the younger brother climbed on the back of the firstborn and began the journey home. All four brothers heard the same invitation, you guys. The same invitation. Each had an opportunity to be carried home by the brother. But the first said no, choosing a grass hut over his father's house. The second said no, preferring to analyze the mistakes of another. The third said no, trying to make a good impression so that the father would forgive him. And the fourth said yes, choosing gratitude over guilt. What is your choice today? Which one of the brothers are you today? Remember earlier we talked about the love God has for us, the love that he showers on us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That kind of love is disturbing. It's too much. It's extreme. But it has another name. It's called grace. Grace. It's what we sing about. It's what we celebrate. It's what we celebrated Easter Sunday. We, we celebrated the death and the resurrection of Christ. He died for you, and he died for me. And I'm telling you, if you could just comprehend his love for you, if you could get it from your head to your heart, your life would be different. My life would be different. We would forgive each other faster. We would forgive ourselves faster. We would see our kids different, our husbands different, our friends different. You would see the people who are ethnically different from you different. The people that speak a different language than you different. You may begin to see your ex-husband different, your wife different, because you suddenly realize, now wait a minute, we were all hopeless But God loves us, and he couldn't love us any more, and he couldn't love us any less. But he doesn't love you because of anything that you have done. What does God think about us when God, in fact, thinks about us? He loves us, my friends. Plain and simple, he loves us. We're going to go to a time of prayer. Garen's going to play and sing a couple of of verses of a song to give you time to come to the altar if you feel the need. Maybe today you're here and you've never experienced this unconditional love of God. Maybe today you're here and you grew up in a home where you had to work for your love. You had to earn your love. Maybe you've been void of love your whole entire life. Maybe you're here and you've been so hurt by love in the past that you've just closed yourself off and you don't want to open your heart back up again because of what might happen. And maybe you're here today because you just want to praise the Lord because you do have an overwhelming love for him. Maybe you just want to come up here and say thank you to him. Let's come as Garen sings. Father God, I thank you for the love that you have for each one of us in this room. I thank you, God, that we don't have to do anything to earn it, that it's just a free gift. We couldn't earn it even if we tried. God, I thank you that there is nothing that we could do to make you love us more and that there is nothing that we could do to make you love us less. You just love us. You loved us first. 
God, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know that all-consuming love that you have for them, that today would be the day that they realize it and that they accepted it. Oh, God, we're so good at saying, yeah, he loves, it's easy to see how he loves her or he loves him, but they don't know what I've done. God, thank you, thank you that despite what we've done, that you love us. Thank you that your love doesn't take its cues from what we think about ourselves or what our friends think about us or what our culture thinks about us. God, if there's people in here today that have been hurt in their past and they just can't open themselves up to anyone, to friends, to parents, to family, to spouses, whoever, because they are scared of being hurt again, Lord, would you heal them? Would you show them what true and real love is? God, for those that didn't have an earthly father that loved them, would you reach down right now and just show them the love that you have for them, that you're their father? God, may they know that. God, we are in awe of you this morning. We are in awe that even before we were born, you knew, you knew what we were going to be like. And you loved us anyway. And then you sent your son to die for us so that we could be saved. God, I pray that you would help us to live a new normal, that we wouldn't be content to live in our old lifestyle, that we wouldn't be content to go on sinning, that we wouldn't be content to go on with our crude talk, that we wouldn't be content to go on with watching things that we shouldn't be watching and looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at and listening to things that we shouldn't be looking at, that we wouldn't be content with judging others. But God, we would want to let your Holy Spirit help us to become just like you. Maybe we, maybe we, may we be a church that imitates you, that when people look at us, they see you. God, we can't do it by ourselves. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit to help us. May we be united as a church. Maybe we, may we be united in who we are in you. We love you so much, Jesus. In your mighty, powerful, holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We have heard the good news this morning. We have heard with our ears, and I, I hope that you have heard with your heart today. Those words that we, we say so often, but uh, maybe we don't fully realize that God loves you. He loves us. A lot of amazing things happening in our community, in our life as a church. Great things happening this summer. Uh, we heard about the tea earlier. You can sign up for that uh, and ask questions out in the lobby. If you're a student, we have summer camp coming up. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, you can, you're going to catch an early bird 
deadline this uh, week, so uh, it's actually, I think, today. So if you sign up today, it's the cheapest rate, and we like cheap, don't we, parents? So do that. There's some green sheets that will remind you of that and how to do that today around the students. And uh, why don't we stand? As we go this morning, as we've heard the good news, as we've heard the gospel, I pray that with your ears that you have heard, with your heart it's been imprinted, and I pray that God would flood your heart with his light and his love. As we go out from this place, it would just overflow from who we are, that they would see that love as we were a reflection of him. Go in the peace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ.